George Lucas has said, a special effect without a story is a very boring thing. He's right, stories shape our perception of the world and transform the human experience. Here on the Story Geeks podcast, we love geek stories. But how do storytellers, particularly science fiction, fantasy, and comic book storytellers, craft compelling stories? On today's podcast, we examine the types of emotions storytellers are trying to get you to feel. On this special limited series, the Story Geeks podcast digs deeper into how storytellers craft emotionally relevant stories and how you can learn alongside us to do the same. We'll be using Carl Iglesias' book, Writing for Emotional Impact, to guide our conversation. And while I highly recommend it, you don't need to read it in order to listen to this show. If you're new to the Story Geeks Network, my name is Jay Shear, and I'm the author of the time travel novel, Time Slingers. Today I'm joined by Mike Rowe, a screenwriter and journalist, Melissa White, a comic book writer and host of the Comic Creators Club podcast, and Will Marlowe, a screenwriter, film school faculty member, and host of the Mecha Dragon podcast. This is just the first of many episodes to come focused around the craft of storytelling, so make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast provider. Also, this series will be running alongside our special Star Wars series. I hope you'll join us for those shows as well. And if you like what you hear, please consider supporting the show by joining the Story Geeks Club. For more information on the Story Geeks Network and the Story Geeks Club, visit thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks Podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Let's dig deeper into Chapter 1 of Writing for Emotional Impact. It's a pleasure to have you guys here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Mike, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. For sure. You know, I uh, am currently a pop culture writer for LAist, and I work for also for KPCC Public Radio. Uh, you can find my work on LAist talking about uh, pop-ups and escape rooms and uh, everything else going around around uh, on around Los Angeles. And uh, I'm also a screenwriter. I write with my wife, Christiana, and uh, uh, keep an eye out for our scripts, hopefully somewhere, someday. Oh, dude. Escape rooms are my jam. This is not an escape room podcast, but I love <laughs> escape rooms. So <laughs> that's always fun to bring up. Will, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to. Well, I am also a screenwriter, and uh, I've lived in L.A. for a little over 10 years now. Currently, I, uh, I work for a film school in San Francisco. I'm mm -hmm. on faculty there, and um, I also worked as a development ex executive in Hollywood at a really, really small production company uh, called Wild at Heart. Uh, they they currently have out a really great documentary called uh, Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. So if you're mm. interested in documentaries or journalism, I would definitely check that out. Um, but I, you know, currently I'm also the host uh, or co-host of the Mecha Dragon podcast as well. That's right. I've been on that podcast. This is a really good time talking about Endgame. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was really cool. Melissa, give us just a picture of Melissa. Oh, um, it's a terrifying picture, so here we go. <laughs> um, hold on to your butt. <laughs> so I'm Melissa White. I am a comic book writer. I've written uh, two works, uh, one sound box for Kamikaze. It's a wall tale um, that's out and available, and you guys can check it out and check Kamikaze out. Um, it's a great sort of sci-fi dystopian, like cyberpunk story. 
Um, and I've also written my own comic, Nightmare, um, which it has a first issue out now, and the second issue is on its way out. And in addition to writing, I run um, or I co-produce a podcast uh, with Comics Academy called uh, Comics Creators Club and 10 Questions With, where we interview comics creators of all kinds um, and talk about just the process of creating and why we do this crazy thing called comics. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's why we all decided to, to just torture ourselves this way. And because we must. <laughs> it's <laughs> a compulsion. Some people are masochistic, and I guess we all are. Well, the reason these guys are on the podcast, as story geeks, one of the things that we are so focused on is making sure that we understand how the storytellers are conveying different aspects of the story, emotion being one of the biggest, most important aspects of storytelling. Stories are literally the way the brain is wired to understand and interpret the world around us. Carl Iglesias is the author of Writing for Emotional Impact, and he claims that Hollywood is in the emotion delivery business and that movies and television shows, and I would add novels and comic books because I think these are all just forms of storytelling, um, he calls movies emotion machines. Do you think that's true? Are storytellers in the emotion delivery business? I think it's very true. You know, I think that uh, the thing... It, especially I would say in television even more so than film in some ways because uh, as someone who focuses more on my writing on tel television there's a lot of you have to get people locked in with characters they want to be connected to these people to follow them week after week after week mm -hmm. and you need to make people feel something or else they're not going to want to be there with you on that journey um, I always think about something my dad said he is a, a science guy very logical and he told me when he was in the movie theater watching E.T. Uh, the thought that he had to himself when he, he heard the score rise, and he thought, wait a second, they're trying to manipulate me. And <laughs> I was like, Dad, yes. you don't get it. Yes, they were trying to manipulate you, and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't deal with that. He doesn't like being, have his emotions manipulated, but like as writers, that's what we do. That's what we're trying to do is to give you a feeling and manipulate your emotions. I completely agree. Uh, I mean, I think that storytellers are definitely in the emotion delivery business. I mean... If we're not in the emotion delivery business as writers and storytellers, what business are we in, really? Mm. Is it to write the most logical progression of cause and effect, to create a dispassionate study of a character's flaws and virtues? It doesn't really <laughs> sound entertaining to me. Um, I just think that people want to feel something. What's the point of going on an adventure if it doesn't move you, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is, this is where I wanted to bring up plot holes, actually, because... You know, this is the reason why plot holes can be so jarring in some movies, but virtually invisible in others. Like, take The Dark Knight, for example, which is, like, almost universally acclaimed by the geek and, you know, superhero-loving community, right? It's, like, mm. a movie that we love. But that movie, as I learned uh, by watching uh, the Just Write YouTube channel, which I highly suggest anybody that loves to write, uh, that movie has more plot holes than almost like any other movie you can make, <laughs> if you think about it. You know, there's countless examples. I mean, like, does do the bus drivers in that big line not care that one of the buses, like, crashed into the bank and then drives <laughs> out, and why does nobody comment on it? When Joker burns that money on the boat, money doesn't burn that fast. I mean, I'm pretty sure money doesn't burn that fast. You know, can you really get a fingerprint off of a shattered bullet? There's, like, there's so many things that you could list in that movie, but we still love that movie 
because it's a great story and it gives us all the thrills and you know emotions that we uh, want to get out of a Batman movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I for one, I think you're 100 percent right, Mike. Your or your dad is 100 percent right that you were, we as writers are trying to manipulate people. I mean, we're making, we're creating a different kind of experience out of thin air, right? Like we're taking experiences that we've had and we're including them in a story that has not otherwise been told before and it is coming from a place of imagination. Um, that's why we're not doing documentaries. I will say, I will say that as a counterpoint to his point that movies are emotional machines and stories, I, I'm, I'm adding all kinds of storytelling on top of that to say all kinds of storytelling are emotion machines. I would just put a little bit of a caveat on there to say that it's in my in my opinion it's partially true but i do believe that in today's marketplace it is especially true and i think it's especially true because today's marketplace of story i don't know if we've ever had in the history of storytelling the monetization of stories like we have today um obviously oral storytelling goes back in the human race probably since the time the human race um, came about so the fact that we would be in a in such a sophisticated place with stories is maybe not surprising it's been a part of our makeup throughout the entire development of our species but the problem with emotions is that people buy emotions people buy emotional experiences i mean just go ask disney <laughs> disney mm -hmm. is like the epitome of this um and i agree with the author's statement the one caveat i would probably put on it is that I feel like the best stories of all engage our hearts and our minds. They make us feel and they make us think. Um, mm -hmm. Because you can sell to someone's emotions, but if you can also engage their minds, that's like the, the highest form of art to me. Um, and I say oh, that yeah. because if I sell you on a, purely on emotion with nothing else, and I just say, hey, this is, I want you to feel something, only feel something. I, in fact, I don't want you to engage your mind at all. I think basically you're creating propaganda, especially if I'm reiterating mm -hmm. back to you what you already believe, <laughs> right? Which, mm -hmm. which is just rampant today. And I think it's sort of dangerous in the marketplace that we're finding ourselves in today too, because fans want specific things out of the content and, and fans have a voice that's louder than it's ever been before. Um, and I think it's very dangerous to tell a storyteller, this is the way I want you to make me feel, so write this. I, I want to, you know, that's really interesting, but I think that there is a big distinction between this kind of storytelling that we're talking about and propaganda, because propaganda is also very much beating you over the head with a certain point of view mm. uh, that it wants you to, uh, that it wants to convince you of, or it wants you to take away uh, from the, you know, I don't know, story or whatever you want to call the propaganda. Whereas it, at least to me, a really great story it can it can explore a theme or an idea but it's not beating you over the head with like you must think this way this is the answer you know this is this is what you should think about this a good story is not preachy in that way to me yeah. uh, whereas with propaganda it very clearly has a goal of saying you must believe you know x yeah, and I think I think actually you're. I I would say that I'm if I if I said that in a way that made it seem like I wasn't reiterating kind of that same point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You could take a story. I think that um, so Scott Derrickson said this. I think I've repeated this mm -hmm. in the podcast before, but Scott Derrickson said uh, 
that we should really go into writing and storytelling to explore a topic, mm-hmm. not to deliver a message. Mm-hmm. Um, and if a message occurs as we explore, great. But it is through the exploration that we really get all of the nuance. And, and I've heard Ryan Johnson say similar things that I've talked about in the podcast before, mm-hmm. too. And I think that those things are really important because otherwise, if we go into it saying, I'm going to force my characters into situations where the characters will indeed respond in these ways because I'm trying to get this message across, then I feel like it can be propaganda. And a lot of people who are writing these days are like, I think anyways, they're saying, I want to deliver this emotion in this way. And so therefore it is going to feel this way, even though there's more nuance to it than I'm, than I'm willing to put into my work of art, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very true that if you had a story, by the way, you can also have propaganda. And I think this is what you're, you're hinting at will, um, you can have propaganda that is only engaging your mind and not engaging your emotions at all. Absolutely. (laughs) So propaganda can be all over the map. Yeah, I mean, I agree that engaging the mind as well is super important. Um, I think that uh, it's it's hard with to engage the mind with a lot of people without also engaging their emotions, though. I think that you're not going to stick with you in the same way if you don't also have your emotions involved. Uh, I very much agree with what Scott Derrickson said there. I think that, um, it, though, if you write a story that is personal to you, that is meaningful, that you are putting emotion into, I think you're going to get to ideas and to things that do engage you mentally because it's not going to engage your own emotions as a writer unless it has those extra bits to it. Um, so I think that they, they very much work hand in hand. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, same. So the writer of this book, Carl, goes on to say that the writer has two tasks. One is to create the imaginary world and the life of your characters. And two is to create the intended emotional effect on the reader how do you as a storyteller go about that latter part? Melissa, what do you think? You know, I, in comics, it's a little hard to to know exactly what beats or to, to write in, to place in the emotional impact beats and then to really know if that's what's landed. I always hear different things mm. um, with regard to like my own writing about what's more emotional and what's not more emotional. But I always tend to go with the with family and I think that that's what really works is how these how these characters are are involved with their family with what are mm. those situations that are brought out as a result of this you know fantastical situation um, that have brought out um, one of the most I, I guess one of the most landing things that I've always heard is that I in, in town box in particular there are two sisters and you know they're kind of on their own living together and at the end it's less about you know them finding this this piece and working with you know the hero in order to return it it's more about their relationship with each other in the wake of this new technology and you know how they kind of relate to each other it's it's it tends to be a little bit more um emotional for people because there's something for them to really connect to something that they can relate to having Mm. that sibling or having that person in their life that they're, you know, they've, they've kind of gotten in trouble with, but they know still loves and supports them. Um, So always connecting something to a universal experience is always the best way. I, the easiest way I think to, to connect emotionally with a bunch of people and really land in the emotional impact. That's a great point. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is a big question. (laughs) This is a big question. Um, Luckily, I do have some opinions about it. Um, So, you know, 
Let's talk fundamentals. I really like uh, getting down to like what, what fundamentally affects things and, and makes the difference in writing. So a big part of it for me is making sure the characters are empathetic. Um, it, it's hard to elicit emotion without characters after all, right? Mm-hmm. So, or if you don't care about characters, what's the point? And, and so I don't mean to say that the reader or the audience should sympathize with the character because sympathy is more distant. Um, so to me, empathy basically means that the reader or the audience understands why the character behaves the way that they do, even if they don't condone it or even necessarily like the character you know, as a person, like somebody they would be friends with or not. So uh, creating a connection between the reader and the audi- or reader audience and a character um, comes through some kind of understanding, right? And so just think about villains and antagonists. Now, there are exceptions to this. Like, I would say the alien in the Alien franchise is an exception to this. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the best villains have a like, a like a really compelling rationale for the awful things they do where they have positive traits mixed in with the bad ones or like a tragic backstory that led them to be the way that they are. In other words, they don't just do evil things because that's what villains are supposed to do. Those ones lack depth, mm. right? There's no understanding or emotional investment there. The, and the same goes for heroes and protagonists, by the way, I would say. Um, so empathy, this like relatability where you can identify with a character, leads to this emotional investment. And once you have that, you can play with the way the story affects the characters and and how that you know how you can use that those events to generate the emotional impact you want in the audience. So I'm just going to take one more example. Hmm. Take Thanos, for example, in um, Infinity War. I mean, clearly he is evil and like the biggest mass murderer in the universe. But he was so compelling. They actually made him the protagonist of that movie, even though he's a villain. Hmm. Um, and to this day, you still have a bunch of people online saying, no, he's right. <laughs> you know, and yep. compare him to like an earlier MCU villain like Ronan or Malekith, who are like <laughs> totally one-dimensional, basically. And do you do you? I mean, is there emotional investment there? No, they're just something that the heroes have to destroy. You know, and I'm not knocking those other movies. Well, I mean, you know, Thor: The Dark World <laughs> isn't my favorite movie. I love Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy though. But I just I just want to point out. I just want to try and answer your question with that example. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. That's really really good. How do you, when you're writing something, how do you know when you're achieving it? How do you know when you've created the, the connection that you go, okay, I, I can see that there's empathy there? It's, it's funny because a lot, like I have to do a lot of work on my characters. It doesn't come as easy for me as I imagine it does for other uh, writers. Hmm. But, but so there's definitely a, like a, a longer, a, kind of a long development period for me where sometimes I'm even like well into the writing of the script or the, or the draft or whatever it is. And I'm, but there comes a moment when I, it finally clicks when I really get that character and it's more like I'm watching them do stuff mm. and trying to type it down like as fast as I can. Uh, and when I get to that point, and the things that they're doing and the things that they're experiencing are affecting me emotionally. That's when I feel like I'm on to something. And, you know, it can be validated if I have people read it and, you know, and give me the right people read it and, you know, give me the, you know, the constructive feedback. But that's that tends to be for me when I feel like I'm really on to something. 
I, I mean, I think that's so true. I, I think that it's really key to write something that's true to how you feel. Uh, and if you don't feel something related to what you're writing about, your writing is very likely to turn out hollow in the end. Um, you know, I, I think that that's part of the reason why movies are churned out because of their marketability and that can have such negative associations with it and why traditionally like superhero movies and IP and stuff had a sort of like big intellectual property had this negative association with it because often it wasn't people writing from what they actually felt and what they cared about but just trying to, to fit in adventures for this character. I, I think that Disney and the MCU and, and also at Pixar, they've sort of turned that all on its head and have created some of the most amazing emotional stories using uh, these big characters. But that, I think that's been sort of a shift over the last, um, I don't know, 15 years or so to make those stories uh, with emotion as more of a key component of everything they do in a way that it hasn't necessarily always been. Um, and just going to how you ensure that you are creating that effect, I think that it's so important to get real responses from people, sort of get out of your own head. Uh, like, I, I try to actually get have people read my scripts, see how it affects them. I know at places like Disney and Pixar, there's such a long uh, refining process where everybody's giving notes and they're screening it over and over and over again, and you sort of have to keep refining it and see what uh, is really resonating with people in the end. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's a book uh, called Creativity Incorporated. Have you guys read that? I have no. a copy. I haven't finished it yet. Okay. It is one of my favorite books from a business standpoint because it talks hmm. about how a large organization can effectively almost almost act like a startup hmm. um, in terms of it needing to get immediate feedback as to whether or not its product will fly when it reaches the shelves, kind of like. Yeah. Um, and it talks about Pixar's brain trust and I've always wanted to create a brain trust similar to that. We're trying to build one for our nonprofit um, production company that we have. Mm. And just to be able to have that level of feedback and storytelling, to have expert storytellers that desire to put the best possible work out there without mm. taking it away from the creator either, right? They're just giving feedback. Mm. They're not taking responsibility away from the creator. So mm. um, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I, I agree with Melissa in that I feel like this is a very difficult thing to ascertain. Like, have I, have I elicited the appropriate emotional response in my audience? And, and, and by the way, uh, I would venture to say that it's impossible to do it for everybody, right? Like there's Definitely. just some people that will be like, I don't feel this emotion that you're trying to prompt in me and I'm just not gonna, not even gonna try. Um, so I, I tend to like to try to get writing partners, co-authors, I try to get reader feedback or, um, or viewer feedback as much as possible. Uh, the other thing that I have tried to do is depending on the type of work. So I'll give you three different ways that I've tried to make an emotional impact. And, and we're gonna get into these types of ways in a minute here. But I like to plot surprise and excitement into the work. Hmm. Um, because I know I can use plot and structure to actually be a form of a way to elicit emotion. Um, because if you have cliffhangers, if you have plot twists, mm -hmm. if you have those types of things, even though you may uh, not be starting, or you are starting with an emotion, you're trying to get them to be surprised, but you are still, you're still plotting it in such a way that it has the maximum level of impact to, hit, to really get that surprise, to have that surprise take hold. Um, I will say that it, the, and Melissa brought this up too, it is different in different 
uh, formats or in different um, ways of publishing your work. So I will tell you that for prose, I love writing in the first person because that way I can actually have the character processing the emotion and that allows me to process how the character feels about something through the character's own viewpoint. Um, and sometimes that takes multiple, multiple revisions to get to where you want it to be. But I think that's a really powerful way is writing in the first person because they have to be experiencing the thing and therefore you have to, you have to take on some level of emotion in them to get that through. That's interesting, Jay. You know, I'm writing something right now in third person limited, mm. and uh, it's it's not first person to be sure, but it, it does focus very much on the current POV character, and I think that's uh, I think that's totally correct what you're saying about how you can uh, use one character's you know internal thought processes to kind of elicit that. Yeah, I, I had a third person limited um, the story that we published called Time Slingers. It's a time travel novel, mm-hmm. and that one is totally like it's there's no there's no processing internal emotions at all right like so it's it's a definitely a limiting thing depending on the point of view you 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 place on on a character um it can be really hard to convey emotions that way yeah um and then the other one that i'll mention is uh i'll mention two more actually the one when i'm writing for the screen and you guys as screenwriters will have to tell me um and even even you melissa as, as a comic writer you have to get the visuals right mm-hmm. um and so i try to write almost entirely visual as if i can't use dialogue as a way to uh, elicit emotion at all and i found that to be a very instructive process into processing emotion it's like how would i visually convey this to the point where you would not need words to know what was happening to a character emotionally mm-hmm. have you ever thought about that technique or implemented it in specific ways i think i definitely have you know i i think that uh writing more for television it's um there's less of the uh uh, uh big spectacular stuff happening as much but you still want to create visual interest wherever you can uh i think the thing that really my wife and i uh are the way our writing has evolved is that we are uh writing better action lines writing lines that really do tell that story visually and Mm. um you know i think that we are are looking at ways to cut back on our dialogue um uh but it's it's not quite the same as in films it's like films such a director's medium where it is all about the visual while that's a little less true in television yeah television's much more of the writer's medium i think you know you'd literally have the writers being the the head executives on the show you know the the showrunners are tend to be the, the main writers on the show um and it's such a different art than a different skill than writing prose for a novel right definitely is yeah mm. in fact i often find uh, we my wife and i just finished carnival row last night mm. oh, and nice. um I, I i turned to her at one point in the final episode and i went you know it's so cinematic but this just feels like it this section of this final part feels like it could have been handled in a much more visual way than it is and and that's that's the difference between television and film but since we started to mm. blend the two so much in terms of cinematic yeah. quality it does get confusing sometimes as a viewer. You're like, why'd they do it that way? <laughs> um, although I will say another show, which is not a geek show. And I know we're always about geek stuff here, but it's not a geek show. But Mindhunter has mm. so much dialogue and yet is fascinating all the way through. It's a great um, show. Yeah, great show. So it's just one of those things where I think 
the writing can change and adapt depending on the format you are writing for um, in being effective. And the show you're writing for, I mean, if you're, so I, I don't know, Mike, whether you focus more on pilots or, you know, if you're spec writing, but like, both. so if you're doing both. Of yeah. Those. Okay. Spec writing is when you write for a, like an existing show uh, on speculation. So nobody's paying you to do it. You're doing it basically as a sample of your work to maybe get a job. Right. And so you really have to pay attention to when you're doing the spec writing, the particular show that you're writing an episode for, like how much dialogue do they have compared to, you know, the more cinematic stuff. Like, you know, what every show has its different style. And so I think that if you're writing an episode for Game of Thrones, that's much different than writing an episode for, you know, um, like 30 rock or something mm. you know yeah. what i mean yeah Absolutely. exactly you know i think that like my wife and i we wrote specs this year we were a spec this year for supergirl which is a very action heavy show mm-hmm. um and so like it also has a lot of emotion to it so sort of balancing those while the year before we did uh this is us which is so much like the emotion and uh you have to work a little bit more to find that visual interest within that mm-hmm. you know and a little different um, in comics as it relates to comics. You know, co- a lot of people think that writing comics is kind of like writing just any old script. It can be automatically transformed, and maybe that's why Hollywood is mining comic books. <laughs> Choose me, executives. Mm. Um, choose my work. <laughs> um, but that that being said, it there are some really because it's a moment in time that you're capturing in one panel, and each panel has to kind of flow and has a, have its own have its own life but still connect to this larger whole capturing you know the impact or the reaction or the excitement of one thing has to be kind of planted in much earlier um, in how you develop the character mm-hmm. and you can have a ton of dialogue but real estate in comics is so limited that you mm-hmm. really have to punch up every little line of dialogue and it has to be the most meaningful the most something that's going to carry everything forward and really tell us more about the character and then on top of that you as the writer you're writing in everything the artist is is contributing to that is shaping that but you are creating the world the framework the characters everything that they need um to convey the sort of message of the story. So whenever you're putting in your, you're writing your panel, planting in those little seeds of, you know, this is a reaction. You have to think about mm-hmm. it visually, but you also have to think about it as a photograph of a scene in a movie or in a television show. So to, to I guess, kind of land that, everybody, it has everybody read comics, I guess? Um, well, I'll choose a famous one, um, like Preacher. Mm. And that yeah. Preacher could fully be its own movie it's fully storyboarded we'll use a tv show you take that action sequence where they're in the the hotel room fighting that (laughs) angel right that was amazing one of my favorite action sequences (laughs) in a show of all time and so great um but so you have to take those moments and just snapshot it and then Mm. you know how jesse was like exhausted by this point like this thing just keeps coming back why won't you die (laughs) like you have to be able to take take enough of that of those little pieces so that when you get to that moment of jesse feeling so exhausted it really hits but that happens Mm. over the course of of like maybe five pages you know, mm. the sequence, that entire thing mm-hmm. can happen over the length of an entire comic book if you really want to do it well, but you have to condense it down. So it's it's kind of like 
taking all of that energy and then distilling it into 22 pages and then one snapshot you get to hit these big moments and it's it's really hard (laughs) really 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 hard yeah to your point i actually just finished reading um a comic called five ghosts and i really enjoyed it it was a really it was a really good comic um and the in fact i really love the setting of it but one of the comments i had made in a a really short review i did on twitter so it's really short um was that i said i felt like the execution was a little bit fast like in other words the real estate that the the writer was allowed mm-hmm. felt like it was limited and it would have been great if you would have been if you would have been able to have like five more pages to work with because there mm-hmm. were some skips in action that i felt like he, he actually did a really good job of showcasing the emo- the uh the response like you said the the reaction to things um, but it still felt like the action needed a few more panels of action to really capture what he was trying to convey. So that's a fantastic point. Thanks. Last point I'll make that one way that I've found about knowing whether or not you're eliciting emotion in the right way. Um, we're working on a full cast audiobook right now, and I'll, I'll bring this up from time to time to give examples, but it's called Death of a Bounty Hunter. And as a full cast audiobook, it is written in the first person so that the actors can act out their internal, um, their internal monologue. Um, but then they also interact with each other. And one of the things I've found super helpful because we're recording it in parts. So we've recorded part one already and part two already and part three and part four are coming up uh, later this year. One of the things I found really helpful is that when I listen to these other people read the story, I've actually been able to adapt future sections based on how the actor has taken over the character and how the actor has started Mm. to give the character life and where the actor is finding emotion. And as as a writer, I can sit back and go, oh yeah, that's it. That's the essence of that character. They've found it. And now I need to turn, slightly change the way that the story is gonna move because of where they've connected to the emotion of the Mm -hmm. writing itself and that has been a fascinating process for me and i almost kind of like want to do it all the time when i do a story (laughs) because it's really really interesting and really fascinating so so really quick i'm going to recap what we talked about so if you're out there and you're a writer and you're thinking about like how do you know that you are connecting with your audience emotionally we've talked about uh we've talked about writing something that's true to how you feel. We've talked about having other people read your stuff and and actually give you their reactions. We've talked about utilizing family and really close relationships to as a starting place because there's a lot of emotion that's that's contained there. We've talked about being really visual and then we've also talked about if possible um, if it's in the format you're writing you can write in the first person or change your change your point of view basically. So that's Really good stuff. Um, really, really good stuff. Let's move on to uh, the next question I got on here. The author gives us three types of storytelling emotions that audiences can experience. Voyeuristic, so this is a natural curiosity for what's happening in the story through the setting and the characters. And it causes the audience to imagine themselves in the story watching the characters experiencing the emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's voyeuristic vicarious emotions and those are emotions that the audience is becoming the character and living out the emotions that the character is experiencing so that's vicarious and then finally visceral emotions and these are the actual emotions the audience feels while engaging with the story can be things like curiosity tension fear excitement 
Well, I'll give an example of voyeuristic to start with. So, Melissa, what do you think? Voyeuristic emotions. What's a movie that you gravitate towards? You know, I just watched Midsummer. I'm so late, um, but I finally <laughs> did it. Ari Aster really did it again. And I experienced all three of those mm-hmm. <laughs> in that movie. Um, but voyeuristic, and I know it's not comic related, um, but it's just so it, so near to me right now I've been talking about it I've been you know digesting it and watching especially in the first sequence right when we when we open up on this beautiful like natural cold landscape that feels very isolated and you hear this wonderful like song that kind of reminds you of like this it's tonal so you're you're going writing this sort of wave of emotion through these Mm. tones um and in this opening song and then it becomes a little bit you know then you get that horror element to the song where you start to feel sad and you start to feel very like lost and confused a little bit um i felt voyeurism in that you know, through that medium, I felt like I was part of it, but I was also, I was also just watching everything play out and I felt part of the story. And I think it was a great way to set up for, you know, those other three, you know, those other three, um, em- emotional impact moments, um, mm-hmm. that you're discussing. So yeah, that was the, I think that was the last time that I was, or one of the most n- recent um, times that I felt voyeurism yeah almost like you, it lulled you into wanting to like just watch to see what would happen next yeah exactly. that's cool yeah for uh voyeurism in particular i think that uh one thing that i've been thinking about lately is i just over the weekend i saw joker mm. um i think that that's a movie that's really well crafted and isn't necessarily the kind of thing that i would necessarily have like a, a direct connection with the character necessarily but I think that because you are seeing this complicated character in living in a fascinating life in these fascinating circumstances, um, I think it sort of uh, starts very voyeuristically. And then as you see more of it, you sort of move into the visceral uh, reaction as it goes. Mm. Interesting. Really interesting. That's cool. Will, what yeah. do you think? What do, what, what's come across for you? Well, um, a movie that comes to mind is Alien, the, the original 1979 Alien so for voyeuristic, I mean, first of all, it's science fiction. I mean, like the, it opens like in space, right? And then you see this enormous spaceship, but then you go inside and it's a bunch of like blue collar guys and gals in there just like doing their jobs. Mm. Uh, and then they get a mysterious signal or they're ordered to like reroute to this place where there's a mysterious signal, uh, you know, and uh, that like right off the bat, you know, gets me as a geek interested is like, okay, sci-fi space. Okay. Oh, (laughs) it's not, I mean, this is not the enterprise, you know, this is not a warship like taking, you know, exploring this, this mysterious signal. This is just like a bunch of like regular people in this extraordinary situation. I think they're Mm -hmm. miners, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think they are. Yeah. And so that kind of, I don't know, juxtaposition uh, in the beginning uh, just kind of really got my uh, voyeuristic um, experience going. Yeah, you feel like you're on the ship with them. You're like, what is going to happen next, right? Like, yeah, that's cool. And they filmed that whole scene where they're waking up and eating together in a very sort of naturalistic, almost like voyeuristic way, right? There's like a lot of long shots. People are having conversations that are overlapping each other in a very natural way and stuff like that. So I just found that really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one that, ca- that came to my mind is uh, not geek, um, but it is it's Christopher Nolan. So it's geek adjacent for sure. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Memento. And, and the reason I bring up Memento is that he introduces a puzzle 
Um, he introduces a puzzle, and then the way the story unfolds, which is, if you haven't seen it, it's backwards. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't make us, I don't feel like the character, but I feel confused as if I'm standing next to the character going, oh, yeah, yeah, what, wait, wait, what happened? So I'm standing here watching this character experiencing the emotions that he is experiencing, and yet I'm going, yeah, I have no clue where I'm at right now. <laughs> um, now, that is also how the character feels, but I'm not taking on any other emotions other than the confusion because of the way that he's plotted it. It just throws us off a bit. And I found that really fascinating because I'm right there in the puzzle, and I'm trying to figure out the puzzle the way the main character is, but without the, the same problems that the main character has. So the main character maybe has, like, maybe more of an anxiety response because he's going through, it's about a character who has um, short-term memory loss. Mm -hmm. And so because he can't remember, he's having this anxiety um, come up in him. Now, as a a viewer, I don't have anxiety, but I have this puzzlement of where exactly are we going with this and how is this going to unfold? And you're just right on the edge of your seat for that, which I think is a really interesting way to put people in a voyeuristic emotional state just like you guys have talked about the setting has a lot to do with it how do you write this compelling setting where now i feel like you know i mentioned uh carnival row earlier i feel like when i'm watching carnival row that i am in the steampunk version of Prague. (laughs) like it just feels (laughs) like i'm there you know Mm -hmm. um and that's really really fascinating part of what makes voyeurism so interesting is that you are living something that's very different from yourself. I think that uh, that's sort of what separates it from some of the other styles. And I think that um, it it can happen, especially, I think, early in the story when you're sort of building that world. Um, And I think it can create, I think think world building can also sort of help bring people in in a voyeuristic way and want to see, hey, what's what's going on here? What's this world like? Like with Carnival Row, Mm -hmm. um, because it is such an interesting society and they are setting up this whole uh, uh, thing going on there in, in a, a fascinating way. That's so true. So true. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, just to kind of build off of what Mike was saying, I think that it's the setting and the world bidding, but it's also, you know, if you have a great hook that's that's apparent from the beginning, mm-hmm. that really makes people interested in the setting and the characters and like, oh, what could happen? Like, you know, maybe it's um, you're highlighting at the beginning some peculiar rules of the setting so people you know it, it piques your curiosity and say oh i wonder what the, the implications of this are like mm. how that's going to play out in a different way because of this absolutely absolutely um, i mean I, I guess to land it for and to kind of play on that and or build on that for comics specifically bringing in bringing everyone into the story that your voyeurism I think ideally happens in your first issue and it should be Mm, happening like in your first you know your first introductory about five pages because at that point you know we don't really know what's happening we we don't really know the characters and we're still watching them develop through this situation and it's you know I I primarily work in horror so that's where you're going to find your that's where you're going to allow where it's easier for people to kind of watch what's happening and kind of get to 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 understand the characters understand the setting and understand um what's happening to them 
um, by doing that in the first initial in your setup, um, you're inviting them into the world and allowing them to suspend their disbelief a little bit um, so that they can open themselves up to the possibilities of what's happening. Ideally, you want to ideally you want to bring everybody in. Of course, everybody and no matter what you're doing, you want to bring them in in the first in that first uh, couple that introduction, the first couple of minutes or, or, or something of your of your work. Um, but in comics, writing that in so that people haven't, you make space for them mm. in each panel, in these interactions and in this opening sequence, um, gives them the chance to kind of get their bearings before you hit them over the head <laughs> with uh, whatever you're doing. That's awesome. Let's move on to vicarious emotions. And this is this would be, we are ex experiencing the same emotions that the characters are experiencing in the story. So we are sort of becoming the character, if you will. Um, and Mike, I'll start with you on this one. What, what's an example from a geek story where you feel like you felt the emotions of the character? You know, I, I feel like I get this a lot when I am watching stories from the MCU. Uh, I feel yeah. like it's easy to want to identify with those characters because they have this sort of aspirational aspect to them. Like you want to be those heroes. You want to, uh, uh, you know, do the right thing, etc. And I think it's very easy to uh, get into that and, and sort of feel both their victories and the, the sort of obstacles they're overcoming. I thought particularly one, one thing that really, I think brought that home for me was, uh, watching Captain America's struggles uh, in the, mm -hmm. the Cap films, especially with the Cap and Bucky relationship. Mm -hmm. I think because that is a relationship that feels like a close friendship, that feels like a friend that you've had yourself, I think it makes it very easy to jump into his shoes and have that sort of vicarious connection to the character. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. Totally. So I'm going to totally agree with Mike, uh, and, I, <laughs> and particularly with Captain America. I, I found that to be the case a lot. And it's funny because if you would have asked me, you know, uh, 10, well, 11 or 12 years ago, you know, before the mm -hmm. MCU, if, you know, by now Captain America would be my favorite movie superhero, I probably would have laughed in your face. Hmm. Uh, because <laughs> uh, before, you know, the first Avenger, I just honestly wasn't sure how they could pull that off uh, in the modern day. But they did, and, uh, and they did. But I'm going to stick with my alien example hmm. because, you know, Vicarious, I mean, it's this futuristic space setting with all this crazy stuff going on but these are like regular people i mean you know you got well you have a, a pilot and things like that but they're all like miners they're all like blue collar workers and you have this you know in the setup they all wake up they're kind of they some of them are grumpy with each other they're having conversations they're laughing they just feel like real people and so you know that makes it you start to identify with them and it's for me it's this process of like identification or empathy that uh helps me to experience vicariously these emotions that they're having so for example you know we're curious and apprehensive with them as they're first exploring the alien ship and you know they're seeing stuff and they make comments like oh that that's messed up and you know what the heck is that um we're concerned about the cat <laughs> when the characters are. <laughs> we're relieved with Ripley when she finally expels and kills the alien. Like, you know, mm. uh, those moments like that, I think you're able to experience those emotions sort of in the character's shoes with them because you're able to empathize uh, so much with them. At least it's that way for me. You know, um, I so many things were popping through my head. And um, to, to Will's point of feeling, 
uh, empathy um, and l- exploring that. I'm going to stick with Midsummer. Actually, I'm going to just mm. basically steal all of Will's whole thing. Um, <laughs> so yoink. Uh, but so in Midsummer, y- you know, the story is about grief. It's about dealing on its head. is is very much about like dealing with grief and you know processing grief. And, you know, the Swedish community has this sort of, you know, uh, vocal uh, sound therapy that they kind of use um, to connect with each other. And there is a scene in which our main character is screaming and crying and, you know, all of the women sort of, you know, run around her and start screaming and crying and processing that grief, you know. And so you really you feel like you feel empathetic because understanding everything that she's had to go through and I'm purposely keeping out all of the, you know, the beats because people should watch it for themselves, of course. Um, and I'm a notorious ruiner of things. Um, so I'm trying to be good. Um, oh, we're, we spoil everything on this podcast, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, good. Cause I'm a spoiler. Um, but so, yeah, she's processing all of this grief and all of the women are screaming and crying and heaving and throwing themselves around. Um, and feeling these emotions and you as the viewer are, are, you know, not necessarily invited to participate. Um, it is a moment where you are really empathetic. You're called, your emotions are called forward because you understand what she's gone through and you understand at that point, um, you know, how, how much this feels, but you're not invited to grieve with her and to process that grief with her. Um, because she's being surrounded by these women. And it's such a really interesting visual trick that they do and sort of like a story trick that, that, um, that they do where you are feeling it or you're, you're, you're there with them, but you're not, it's not visceral yet. It's not mm. that moment of, of visceral. You're still outside of it um, while being in it, if that makes any sense. So, so yeah, um, Putting it in, though, putting it in the, in context and trying to, like, create something like that is a whole different story. Like, how do you get that moment where you're like, I can see and I can understand? And to Will's point, it's creating empathy through these very basic, very straightforward and universal experiences, mm-hmm. the universal experience of grief and, and, and specific to Midsummer. Um, we all had that moment of grief and it doesn't necessarily have to be about the loss of family or it doesn't have to necessarily be about, you know, anything. If you've been involved with another person and another person has hurt you or a situation has hurt you, like you feel that and so calling on that emotion and then expressing it in such a in such a raw way as they do in midsummer um definitely invites the the audience to empathize um Mm. because they're touching back on their own processing of grief and how they've dealt with it and some of us most of us want that moment where we're screaming crying and just like feeling it um, and so being able to watch it without having to experience it for ourselves is a great way of protecting ourselves, but also, you know, al- inviting us to empathize. Hmm. I love that. I love call. I love that phrase. Calling on that emotion is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good writing technique for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best example I can think of in terms of vicarious emotion. Um, I feel this way every time I watch this sequence and it is such a range of emotions 
but it is uh, the opening sequence of Up, the Pixar film Up. Oh, oh my goodness. God. Yeah, exactly. That one hits hard. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't pull a single punch. I mean, it just it takes you from joy and humor to heartbreak and sadness and loneliness. Um, all of those feelings just washing over you in a very short period of time um, done with with no dialogue. It's all visual. Um, and for whatever reason, it's so easy, at least for me, um, to connect to that emotional range. And, and I don't feel like I connect to a lot of movies that way. Um, but that particular sequence, for whatever reason and whatever whatever the writers are doing there to say, okay, we're going to depict uh, a life story of two people coming together and then having to separate. Um, and it goes back to your point, Melissa, about family, right? And starting with family. I mean, this is almost everybody can relate to this story in some way, shape or form. Um, and it's just really, really, really intense. So I think that, that goes be... to what you were saying too about visual storytelling. That's such an amazing visual mm. story in the beginning of Up, mm. where it's not dialogue. It's just you're watching these two lives in little moments, just so quickly. I right. feel like this is an art that uh, Pixar has mastered because think mm -hmm. about Wall-E too, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. how much dialogue oh, is there yeah. in like the first half of that movie? Like zero, right? Um, it's great. Yeah, Pixar is able to now. Now, granted, I think Pixar has uh, what I would call an advantage in that um, it's interesting because I think if, if you would have asked the creators at Pixar in the 90s when they're creating their first <laughs> films, if you would have said, um, is, is using 3D animation uh, a good thing with the uncanny valley the way that it is, <laughs> is it is a good way to tell stories. And the funny thing is, is that by seeing emotion relayed to us from someone who is not a human being, meaning that there is an uncanny valley. When we see these characters, we definitely go, that's not a human being. And we just suspend our disbelief long enough that it can almost be any human being at that point, whether it's an animal or mm. whether it's a, a toy or whether it's an actual human that doesn't really look like anybody we know because of the uncanny valley nature to it. Mm. I think it's almost easier. They almost had a benefit that was not planned for um, by having that lack of, of human connection in a way almost mm. makes it easier to be more of a human connection. Oh, yeah. I think what you're saying, it may be, Jay, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. is that people are accustomed to taking uh, animation sort of at face value and accustomed to just like suspending their disbelief and just going with it, right? Whereas if you get to that, you know, that nadir, the, the bottom of the uncanny valley, where things look almost human but not quite to the point where it's super creepy right. that's when we were like no I, I don't i can't relate to that let's turn that off uh is, is that kind of what you're getting yes, at or exactly or or you can be looking at a person on screen and you can go well i don't buy that emotion from them or mm. you can say i don't recognize myself in that person and so therefore it is harder for me to feel the vicarious emotion through them Right. Mm. Um, whereas if it is uh, something that is not actually human, I think that it's easier to associate ourselves to it for whatever reason. And I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> it's just, you know, you have to go out and see where that's coming from. But it just seems like that's there's some truth to that. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, definitely. I think in that um, 
if I may, in that sequence of um, from the Lion King where Mufasa dies. Oh, you know, yeah. the, if those were people and this was just Hamlet, you know, we would kind of <laughs> tune out and be like, OK, we all bring our sort of our own personal biases into into a movie. Right. It, and yep. with people, regardless of what's going on, without them being human, though, we can suspend those sort of personal biases, biases oh, yeah. and just kind of let that exist because they're not people. They don't yep. represent, you know, the things Maybe that, that makes like. it easier for us to project ourselves into them then in that sense. Well, yeah, yeah because I was sobbing like a baby when Wufasa <laughs> died. And to yeah. this day, it gets me. Who wasn't? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to go to visceral. So this is just the experience of an emotion as you're watching the actual emotion you're feeling. Um, so w yeah. what is an example you would take away from there? Okay, so I'm, I'm sticking with my alien example. Oh, yeah, I've, thought, I've thought about this one. So, yeah, I mean, you know, once you have a story where you have already empathized with the characters, I think sometimes it can be difficult to unbundle the visceral from the vicarious especially if you're having a similar reaction to the character about something. But, you know, there are cases uh, where I think you can separate them. So, for example, uh, for example, in Alien, we feel the tension when uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character comes into that room with, like, all the chains hanging down and mm. it's, like, dripping water. And, like, you know the alien's up there, right? You know there's something in the dark and something bad is going to happen. I think he's looking for the cat at that point, right? And... Uh, we know more than the character at, at that point. And so, you know, we're feeling, we're feeling this tension that he's not necessarily feeling. So I would describe that as the visceral. But also, uh, towards the end of the movie, there's that scene where Ripley doesn't know yet that the alien is on the, sh the like, escape pod with her. Mm. And she, like, gets undressed, and she's, like, going about her business on the ship, and she's, like, so vulnerable in those moments and we know before she does that the alien is on there with her mm. right and so and so that it creates that sort of dread for us that would be the, the visceral and then the, the last moment i'll mention is like the signature moment from the movie when the when the alien bursts out of john hurt's chest uh and we're just in utter shock and and horrified now the characters are too <laughs> right so right. maybe that's a situation where it's harder to unbundle the visceral from the vicarious but i think that that it also counts as visceral because i mean i i really was not expecting that when i saw it i don't know about you guys great example melissa what would you jump in what's an example that you've seen mm -hmm. that you would throw in there of a visceral emotion you know um this one i kind of grapples with a little bit but i finally landed on Okay, so before I go into it, you know, there's so many moments that we all have where we're just like we're in that moment and those moments become part of, you know, a sort of discourse that happens online. It's happening everywhere, especially for me as a black woman existing in the world. Um, when you get to the sunken place and, you know, you're you're he like you're hearing the lead. There's a lead up to it of like the tea, uh, the spoon and the tea. And you can um, you can hear the sort of bell like sound that kind of like you know, allows you to loosen yourself up, but you're still so tense because so much is happening. And there's been so many moments of, of tension leading up to it that by the time you get to the sunken place, you've completely fallen into it and you know that feeling so well. Um, and that is, I, that is the great horror of this, of this film is that it's, you know, it plays on like 
that whole area of self-doubt you're locked within yourself you cannot speak you are at the mercy of the powers outside of you that mean to absorb your culture to take things from you to take yourself and essence from you um and leave you trapped within yourself um that feeling was so real and so raw and so beautifully presented um, by Jordan Peele in the movie that you know it's become it became its own moment outside of that you know people were talking about oh you know he in the sunken place because (laughs) (laughs) like are you making jokes about it because it was so real and so tangible um and especially like as as you know as a black person um as a black woman where you kind of get trapped you you have these moments where you are trapped within yourself and you you you've been pushed back there so much by by a society that still is fighting against your own humanity um and not seeing you as a human but seeing you as a vessel of of culture and everything and wanting to take that from you that feeling was such a gut punch but also so beautiful and i think that those visceral moments become moments in themselves in in society after we watch them so when we're looking for visceral moments um that's what we're looking towards i think but what made it visceral um and i guess is like sort of a thing that i'm i'm constantly working at is that build up is creating the tension and the lead up and you know the emotion to get that moment that you really that you really really want the impact that you really want and i'm talking about like the t at right before that and that sort of hypnotic sound of a like sort of almost bell like um you know um something like that and then the emotions leading up to it between the character interactions developing those little moments um and planting them in so that by the time we get there you know you kind of get hit in the gut with this is what's really happening and you feel it so much more than you would if you didn't have those moments. Yeah, Jordan Peele, for being somebody with, what, two films now? <laughs> uh, and I, I realize he has a whole career that's separate from filmmaking too, but uh, is just a masterpiece. What a brilliant. Yeah, guy, it's, right? just, it's insane. Um, if you had half the talent Jordan Peele has, you'd be still amazing. <laughs> <Right>? so, <laughs> and isn't he hosting the new uh, Twilight yep. Zone now? He too? is, yeah. 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 One thing that I was thinking about that always hits me on a visceral level, sort of ironically, because it's not necessarily a, a base human thing, is just space movies. Uh, I was thinking mm. recently seeing Ad Astra and uh, also maybe the same feeling in like Interstellar and Gravity. I think that the reason why those really hit me like that is there's something about like the lonely emptiness of space that is sort of just hits you on like an instinctual level. Um, and mm. I think that those movies also it has to do with sort of my own fears about space and life and etc but uh, i think they also those movies often combine space with family like you have both ad astra and interstellar had to do with uh parents and children and that relationship uh was a big part of what what drove those so they combine like the these sort of uh otherworldly sensation with something that is that we all experience i think that sort of uh transcends back to those universal experiences exactly she was talking about yeah Yeah, i think it was made those hit you uh uh, in in that very specific deep way yeah i think i have on my list i have first of all just horror movies in general and Mm -hmm. i'm I'm not a horror movie (laughs) fan actually I, i can't stand them one of the reasons why i can't stand them is because they make me so anxious mm-hmm. <laughs> so as i'm watching they'll make me anxious mm-hmm. for days i'll have nightmares for like 
several nights after I watch a horror. That's why movie. I haven't watched a horror movie in a, in quite a while. Yeah, exactly. In, in fact, we the, I tried to watch. Um, oh, what's that one with Emily Blunt? Um, where they have to be oh, quiet, quiet, place. A quiet, quiet place. place. Yeah. So that was the first horror movie I'd watched in a while, and and we watched it um, right before we have two kids, and we watched it right before we had the the second mm. one, which was earlier this year. And I find now that I'm so now that I'm a parent, I'm so much more sensitive to when like the children are in danger in right, movies. Right. I'm like, protect the children, <laughs> don't let them out of your sight. And that movie, I mean, that movie was really rough. If if you're a parent, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Yeah, that's an amazing oh, yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah I've, it is. I, I'm not a big horror guy either because they are so powerful because they hit you so emotionally. Uh, but I I love seeing one that's done super well. Like I. Uh, and, you know, I have to, to pace myself because it, it will leave that effect on me afterwards because I think you're right. They are very, very visceral. Uh, that that thing you said about the the children in that as well, I think that even, even for those of us who don't have kids, I think that is still a powerful thing. I watched A Quiet Place and Get Out, and I will tell you that those are two of the best horror movies I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life because of the emotions that they put you through. And... Um, yeah, I just horror movies are just very easy for me to say that those are visceral emotions. The other two I have are the this is going kind of tapping off what you said, Mike, in terms of space stuff, but from a from a fantasy angle. So when you see a star destroyer come across the entire screen, the sense of scale and awe that you have. Um, I mean, I'm a huge I'm a huge uh, Star Wars geek. But the sense that that you are now uh, dealing with this thing that is gigantic and imposing and uh, powerful is awe-inspiring to a certain extent and, and, and dreadful to a certain extent, too, because you know that those things can be used for nefarious means. Mm. Um, um, last example, and we'll quickly move on to another one, but uh, <laughs> this is from the MCU, so I'm going to go back to the MCU for this one. Uh, there is something thrilling about a character fully embracing their power and so you i I find it really hard not to have uh, a really strong emotional response to a character like thor or captain marvel you know going full lightning mode and showing up to a battle with full power um there's something about that that elicits sort of like this um this courage response this sense of uh, exhilaration that this is happening on screen um, and you kind of know that the good guys are about to turn the tables most of the time (laughs) maybe not in infinity war but most of the time i want to hear from you guys some examples where you've tried to use one of these emotions in one of the works that you've that you've been involved in creating Mm -hmm. give us an example of one of your works where you've tried to elicit one of these types of emotions from yeah, your well, audience. Uh, you know, the most recent script we wrote and that we are sort of doing some revisions on right now, it's called Holy Fire, and we have a, a main character in it who makes some very bold choices that put her in a bad position, and she's not necessarily making the smartest choices, but it, it's based in things that we've been through. Uh, you know, we were really exploring some of our own uh, relationships with our faith and with uh, our, our own lives, and so I think that putting that real emotion from us into this character uh, hopefully engages readers on a variety of levels and, and make you connect with that main character because you know we're doing something that is real to us and real to people we know, and uh, you know so far people are connecting with it, and I think that that's um, you know what we're always hoping for. Uh, Will, how about you? 
here's maybe a, a more amusing example. I tried to think of things that would be really clear. So for voyeuristic, I made, a long time ago, I made basically a, a student film, which was a commercial. And it starts with a guy, he's just trying to like, go, like walk to his car from the, you know, from the building. Uh, but then as he gets to his car, he's attacked by zombies and they take him down and they're like, you know, chewing out his guts and stuff. And then as he's struggling there for his life, a lawyer steps into the frame and it becomes one of those legal commercials. And he goes, <laughs> if you or someone you know have ever been a victim of an undead attack, you may be entitled to compensation. Uh, and so I think that at least in that moment, <laughs> I've probably piqued the curiosity of, of somebody that wants to know more. Mm. So that would be the uh, the, the more voyeuristic uh, emotion yeah yeah absolutely you know my um so nightmare is uh is a horror comic essentially um so and then the main focus is on you know the relationship of you know our two main characters Luz and Kara and the first issue is is really I think voyeuristic um, because you're kind of walking through this this sort of horrible experience you know with some moments where you can really connect to her um, but the second issue is I think where we start to get really really visceral um, because we've already had I will at least I hope we've had this like the opportunity to kind of you know get to know her outside of these horrible moments and get to know her as a person within the context of this um but it becomes visceral because it starts to take an imp it starts to take a toll on her relationship with her girlfriend Kara and her relationship with her two best friends and and the co-hosts of their show Midnight Marauders um Ed and Jen and how that's how her decisions and how her sort of fear has impacted her life um and by the time we catch up to Luz in issue two we're seeing that her relationship is her relation all of her relationships have always been strained because she's a person that's been living under the sort of fear of her own mind mm -hmm. and what's possible and now that that fear is is out and it's you know it's break it's broken outside of just her head and it's now affecting everyone else you know how those relationships um, are impacted and how that sort of family unit can stick together in the midst of someone dealing it with, you know, a sort of, you know, a mental health issue um, and crisis, but also wrapped in the context of like, you know, this, this horror, this recurring, recurring nightmare that's dragging them all in um, and what their place is in it places in it so I'm trying I've like tried to do that there I hope the seeds have been planted but I mean we'll see um, for, for myself, uh, I mentioned this earlier on in the podcast, but as I talk about the time travel novel, Time Slingers, mm -hmm. one of the things I'm really trying to do is keep the reader on the edge of their seat, keep them experiencing um, the excitement of n not knowing what's going to happen next, but wanting to know what's happening next. So the functional way of me entering, putting that into the story is ending every single chapter in a cliffhanger. Um, and actually one of the biggest compliments I got about it was we had a reader recently say that uh, it ends on a cliffhanger, but that's also a resolution. <laughs> He's like, it's really hard to do. And I go, oh, that's <laughs> cool. I'm glad you recognize that. Um, so yeah, we, so you can use techniques as we've talked about um, to put these emotionally driven things into our stories. And as we talked about in answering the first question, that's really essential 
um, to storytelling is engaging people's emotions. So we're going to close out the first episode right there. Um, and and want to thank everybody for being a part of this episode again. Um, why don't you guys, uh, I'll start with you, Melissa. Why don't you let people know, um, again, where they can find you, where they can find your works and support you as an artist and creator. Um, well, you can always find me on Twitter. I haunt Twitter all the time, actually, um, <laughs> at Malefic uh, Melissafent everywhere. So it's M-A-L-I-S-S-A-I-F-E-N-T on Twitter, Instagram, on Xbox Live. If you want to challenge me to an Overwatch deal, we got it. Um, we can do that. Yeah. Well, uh, you can definitely find me on Twitter at SoCalAuthor, S-O-C-A-L-A-U-T-H-O-R. Uh, you can also find me at mechadragon.net, which is the, uh, you know, the main homepage for my, uh, my podcast. Uh, you can find me at Mike Rowe, M-I-K-E-R-O-E, on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, you can also check out my work uh, covering arts and entertainment in Southern California at laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. That's it for today's show. Special thanks again to Mike Rowe, Melissa White, and Will Marlowe for joining me. Here are some of the big takeaways from today's show. Number one, the highest form of storytelling engages both the heart and the mind, our emotions and our thoughts. Two, have other people interact and engage with your story and ask them what emotions they're experiencing and what prompted those emotions in them. Test and learn what works. Three, craft characters, both protagonists and antagonists, that audiences empathize with. Four, use the space you have in your script wisely. Like Melissa said when talking about comic book action sequences, you have a limited amount of space to make a big impact. Five, draw people into your stories by eliciting emotions that turn them into voyeurs who want to peer into your story and observe it. The setup is an excellent place to get them to feel that set of emotions. Six, Utilize empathy as a tactic to get your audiences to experience emotions vicariously through your characters. Seven, look for specific techniques that allow you to move your audiences emotionally, which is my plug to get you to come back next week when we start to dive into more storytelling techniques. Next week, we'll be talking about the concepts driving our favorite science fiction, fantasy, and comic book stories. We'll also break down how we attempt to make our concepts more compelling to our audiences. Don't miss that show or any upcoming shows. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. For more information, visit thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. Remember, all the Story Geeks Club members get access to my almost daily journals, which are short podcasts with my thoughts on stories and things related to storytelling, all recorded by yours truly. Upgrading to the $3 a month tier gives you the ability to vote on upcoming show topics and get special access to our shows as we're recording them live. If you join at our $5 a month tier, the tier we call our Guardians of the Solar System, we thank you by name at the end of our podcasts. You also receive our discussion questions and prompts before each show comes out. Our Guardians of the Solar System members are 
Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, Ray DeLeon, and Wade Johnson. At our $8 a month tier, members also get to choose an Aftercast topic. Yeah, we have the podcast on whatever topic you choose. We call these members Cosmic Heroes, and here they are. Jim Baldwin, Monty Thigpen, and Nick Prokop. And finally, for anyone supporting us at the $19 a month or more tier, you get to be a guest on one of our aftercasts every month. Our one mastermind of multiverse madness is Connie Moe. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you would like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club, please head over to thestorygeeks.com.